0: if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them or turn them on and head on over to the book of Acts. We're continuing in our series on Acts. We're going to be in chapter 19. Last week, Ron took us up to about verse... Uh, 7, and we're going to be picking up in verse 8. I was thankful for Ron filling the pulpit on my vacation, and I'm happy to be back. I love vacation, but I love you guys as well, so I'm glad to be here to preach with you guys. But as we start reading in verse 8 of chapter 19, you're going to notice, and I want you to understand, the need of intentional disciple making. So with that concept in mind, let's go to the Word of God. And Greeks. So, if you've been on with us on this journey uh, through the book of Acts, we have noted that Paul was told not to go certain places about two years ago, and Ephesus would have been in that region. Now he is allowed to be in Ephesus, and that's where he is. Ron would have talked about him coming to Ephesus last week. And Paul, what we see is that he is a pioneer in Christianity. He's a pioneer in the work of the spirit he's taking the gospel to unreached people groups. Ephesus was known for its idolatry. It was a pagan culture and had pagan worship and, it, and it even practiced sorcery. In the ancient times, they would find dark magic scrolls, and it was all attributed to Ephesus. They were into the dark arts, into the dark magic. And Paul had the courage to take the light of the gospel, the, the, the light of Christ, to the darkest places like Ephesus. And there's a a connection to a modern concept here. We too, as Christians, should, we should have a desire to take Christ to those who don't know him as well. Even today, there are unreached people groups in all the earth. Here's, uh, oh, I didn't put that up there for you, sorry. Here's a map. Of something called the 1040 window. If you've been in the church for a while, you've probably heard of this. If you've been in missions, you've definitely heard of this. How many people have heard of the 1040 window before? Yeah, a number of people. This isn't brand new information, but in this window, it's called the 1040 window for, because of its longitude and latitude, but in this window, there's approximately 5.1 billion people just living in this sect of people in this in this area and of those 5.1 billion people there's 8717 distinct people groups live in this area of the world that's quite amazing and the, and i said the reason why they call it that is the longitude and latitude but the concerning part of this is that of those 8717 people groups 5989 of those groups are considered unreached they haven't heard the message of jesus They don't, it's not even that they kind of see some churches and they know, you know, there's this thing called Christianity. They have no concept of Christianity at all. And that would make up about 3 billion people. That's staggering. And maybe that doesn't impact you that much. Think of it this way. It takes about 10 minutes if you count one number per second, it takes about 10 minutes to count to 1,000. One minute per second, no breaks, no stopping. Now count to a million at that same rule, one number per second, no breaks at all. It would take about 11 days, 13 hours, 46 minutes and 40 seconds. But now, To count to a billion, this is just how crazy a billion is, with the same rules applied, it would take about 31 years, 251 days, 7 hours and 46 minutes to count to one billion with no breaks, one number per second. Just look at that gap, that jump from a million to a billion, from 11 days to 31 years And that's just how staggering a billion is. And now think, there are three billion people that live in that section of the world alone, not including other parts of the world, that don't know Jesus, that have no concept of Jesus. They are unreached people. But not only are there unreached people in the 1040 window, there are unreached people here in Drumheller as well. I've talked about this many times as we walk through Acts, that there we are now facing a generation, Generation Z and later her, the least evangelized generation to ever walk the face of the planet. Some teens have no concept of who Jesus is. I walked with a teen who didn't even know what a Bible was. Nothing. Green. New. Unreached people who could potentially be your neighbors here in Drumheller. And we have a responsibility as a church to reach them. That should be our motive. And Paul feels the same burden for unreached people, and he goes and he commits his life to sharing the good news with all who will listen in Ephesus. And some of the observations that I want to pass on to you that will help us to be better at being intentional in disciple-making as a church is what we learn from Paul in verse 8. One is a consistent boldness. Notice Paul's consistency, his fervency here in verse 8, how he went into the synagogues for three months. For three months, he went to the synagogue. This wasn't just walking in as a shotgun approach, scattering seed and hoping that something will land and grow. He was intentional. He was going over and over and over again, proclaiming the truth of God and who he is. And when we're trying to be everyday missionaries as Christians here in the valley and carry the hope of the world, we need to understand that it takes consistent boldness over time, and consistency is beneficial. Here's one way you can implant this into your life. It's a simple way, and most of you probably already do it and not even aware of it, but to be consistent in where you go shopping. To be consistent in what gas station you fill up at. To be, you know, just the other day, I I go to the same gas station all the time, and the guy always comes out, hey, have you you put a good word in me for to win the lottery this week? You know, he just knows I'm a pastor, he knows I'm a Christian, because I go there all the time. And it's unfortunate that I have to go there all the time. But the hair salon, go to the same hair salon all the time. Be a regular where you go. Let people know you and get to know people. Because what you will notice is that you begin to see the same people in the same pattern as you are. Going to the same spots. They see you, you see them, and you all know that you are locals. And you can, over time, strike up conversations. Look for gospel opportunities. For instance, I can't tell you how many times I've had people at Black Mountain Roasters, our local coffee shop here, come up to me and talk to me because I'm consistently there. Now, I don't want to admit how much I'm there, but I'm consistently there. And they see me, I see them, and they see me study my word there. They see me prepare the sermons that I deliver to you there. And they have con- we have conversations. Just the other week on my vacation, we were going out of town. I stopped there to grab us coffees because it's an addiction at this point. And uh, I walk in there, and I'm standing in line. And a guy comes up to me, and we have a conversation. We exchange information, and then we leave with him saying, I'm really going to come and check out the church. I really need to come there. Consistency is key, and it's so easy to do, but it takes time. I'm not telling you if you're going to go to the same spot for the next three months, you're going to see any results. It doesn't work like that. But to be consistent and be available and be ready to be used by the Lord at all times, to be be bold, to pray to the Lord, to be bold, to preach the gospel. Some of you have even come to this church through random coffee shop experiences like that. You never know. I say this all the time. You never know who's on the other end of your obedience. You never know who's there. But in doing so, Paul recognizes the same thing that you and I should be prepared for. In verse 9, it shows that we should expect some opposition. Rejection will come. I share a lot of fun stories with you about the Lord working and moving in people's lives. But there's also a lot of stories that have led up to that that are filled with rejection. And we shouldn't be surprised by rejection. We read about it in verse 9. It's promised to us in scriptures. We should not be surprised by it. The listeners in verse 9, we read that they were stubborn in their ways. Meaning that's biblical language that their hearts were growing harder. And harder every day. These people who are stubborn and hardening their hearts and continuing their underbelief, they heard the truth that Paul preached and they chose to continue on their current path. As one commentator worded, he said, The hardening of their minds against the reception of the truth was just as voluntary an action as one who shuts his eyes that he may not see the light. Some of us, we hear the truth. And we choose to reject it, just like we choose to close our eyes and claim there is no light. You say, I hear the truth. I understand this truth is important, but I'm going to voluntarily choose to reject it and stay on my current path. And what happens when you do that is your heart becomes more calloused over time. It becomes harder and harder. Just because you choose to close your eyes doesn't mean it's true. You know, it's just like if I have some symptoms in my body, and I'm a typical male, this is typical of me, I ignore it thinking that if I don't deal with it, it's not going to do any harm to me. And I'm sure all the doctors in this room have had people come in and say, if you just came in a little earlier and stopped ignoring the signs, we probably could have done something to curve this. And just because you ignore the symptoms in your body of sickness doesn't mean you're not sick. Just because you don't open your bills that come in the mail or in your email doesn't mean you don't have to pay them they're due. You can't be blissfully ignorant to these things. There is weight to them. And when you compare eternity with Christ to this, it has weights and consequences. So if you hear the truth and you choose to continue in your way, it is as intentionally, it's like if you're intentionally closing your eyes and saying there is no light. The Bible uses the word stubborn. You become stubborn in your ways. But Paul experienced this rejection. This was not new to him, as we saw all over the weeks. Uh, uh, Antagonism was something that he was accustomed to and probably even expected. So here we see Paul. He doesn't get scared or run away. He faces the opposition, rising to the challenge and just turning it into a daily process. He takes those who believe... And, and chose to follow Jesus. And he said he didn't quit teaching them. He says, hey, let's go rent a hall. Let's go rent the hall of Tyrannus. And we're going to continue teaching about this. This was likely a lecture hall named after a philosopher in the area. And what I want us to see is the daily process of Paul and his disciple making. Taking those who do believe and daily for two years. Two years he invests in them. What intentionality we see. He gives his life For these followers of Christ to make sure that they have a firm foundation, a firm understanding on who God the Father is, God the Son is, and God the Holy Spirit is, and what it means to follow him and how he will use them despite their past, despite maybe their dark magic practices that they used to do before, because he was after their maturity in Christ. See, a lot of Christianity today is, hey, we're just going to get you to say a prayer and then get you to sit in the seat and give us 10%, and then you're good to go. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul actually, in context, is laboring to pay his own wages here. And he's he's daily investing in them. And when I read this, I can't help but ask myself a question. And when I ask myself questions, you guys get them too. But who in your life are you intentionally discipling? For the parents in this room, the answer should be your kids. Your number one job is to give your kids Jesus. To train them in the Bible. To bring them to the Word of God as a family. To be praying with them as a family. To bringing them to church and letting them see you worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Letting them see mom and dad take communion. Letting them see mom and dad worship Jesus. And letting them see that mom and dad is no different sitting in these chairs than they are on Monday morning. That there's consistency in your life. Your number one goal is as a parent, and priority is to give your kids Christ. We as the church, we're here to help and support, but it's your goal, your priority at the end of the day. Grandparents, as much as it's fun to give them sugar and kisses, and you should keep doing that, right you also have major influence to give your grandkids the gospel to let live out the gospel in front of your grandkids to be praying for your grandkids to telling and sharing with your grandkids your life journey of your failures in faith and your successes in faith to let them see that it's a bumpy road but you persevered We need the older generation. May we never at this church start believing that they become irrelevant. We need your stories. We need your history. We need your experience to keep us on track and to point us and say, yeah, we tried that about six times and failed. Don't do it. Right? We need grandparents. Your grandkids need you. I wouldn't be who I am today if it wasn't for my Oma. She prayed for me. She gave me Christ. She supported me. She shared her love for Jesus in front of me. It wasn't private to her. She shared it openly with me. And I attribute so much to her. Just because you're retired or getting older, God is not done with you. Amen? Come on, let's say amen to that. You have a major mission field ahead of you. And these are not one-time conversations we're reading about here. These are intentional. These are long. Look at the length of time. Paul had two years, daily two years. I'm not calling it a daily stuff, but you can. That's up to you. But he was going daily for two years investing in these people. Beyond your family, maybe it's a coworker that you're close with. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a cousin or a friend that you can intentionally invest in. And notice that word intentionally. I put it there intentionally because I want you to realize that this is an accident. Discipleship, you don't just kind of haphazardly fall into. You're intentional. You're meeting for more than just a casserole dish. You're meeting for more than just a coffee. This is intentional God conversations focused around his inerrant word that never changes. If you want to disciple someone, but don't know where to get started, come talk with me after service. We have a wonderful program that anyone with any sort of Bible knowledge can lead. And it walks you through the book of Philippians. I'm taking someone through it right now weekly, and it's so powerful. So if that's you, come and talk with me. But discipling, though, just a word of caution, is far more than just getting someone to understand who God is. That's a major part of it, but it also is what does holy living look like? Can you live that out for me? It's not just understanding the authority of God's word, but it's understanding how to study God's word. In this program we will show you how. But it's, and it's not just showing them why it's important to pray, but it's showing them how to pray. And walking with someone in intentionality through intentional discipleship processes, doing life together. Not just, hey, we're going to be in on Thursday, but we're not going to talk till then. Hey, I know your struggles and sin now. How are you doing? Hey, brother, I'm about to sin. Can you pray for me? Can you help me? Intentionality. Here at Fellowship Baptist Church, this is where I see us going. This is where I see our church headed towards is a, in the future as a model of reaching out, building up, which is the discipleship process, and sending out. And it's a circle. You reach out, you build up, you send out. You reach out, you build up, you send out. You reach out, you build up, and you send out. And that idea of sending out is the idea of as you're being discipled here, you're being prepared to go back into your community, into your workplace, in your homes, with your friends, in your circles of influence, and you're going back there to uh, fa- uh, to uh, 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 copy yourself, in a sense, to make other disciples that look like uh, what you're being discipled in, into the Word of God, becoming more like Christ, that you are a disciple that is making disciples, and hopefully your disciples are making disciples. I'm so overjoyed when I hear of stories of this happening in our church naturally. I can't tell you how many ladies I've talked with, and they say, you know what, I've sat with Agnes weekly, and she has given me the word of God. I'm talking multiple ladies here that Agnes has discipled. Sorry to call you out, Agnes. But this is a beautiful, beautiful example of what discipleship is, intentionally pouring in. There are so many of you that I hear stories that I could easily throw your names out here, and I want to encourage you to keep doing it. God sees your faithfulness, and he is pleased. So in our first few verses, we see this idea of intentional discipleship from Paul, and then we come to contrast authentic Christianity in counterfeits People who use the name of Jesus as a magic rabbit foot to get some good luck. So, with that, let's read verse 11 to 16, and we're going to see some interesting things. Up on our, uh, in our story here today. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that have touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the internet Jew, Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by... Uh, The Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirits answered them, Jesus, I know. This is where it gets embarrassing. Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, that's a wild passage of Scripture. I just want to say, if you're doing any type of spiritual warfare and you get beat up to the point where your clothes get ripped off, I think you lost, okay? I don't think you won there. And, and, and it, it's just a wild uh, uh, examples of what's going on here. But what we see is the idea of an imitation faith. When Bailey and I were first married, we were like all newlyweds. We were struggling to find our footing financially as we were just starting out in both of our careers. And so we would find and buy a ton of cheap groceries, not just bargains, but just like, I don't even think you should serve this to people type stuff, okay? And now I'm Dutch, so I still look for all the bargains. You know, copper wire was invented from my Opa and his brother fighting over a penny. But, uh, you know, and so we are cheap by nature, okay? But uh, we now, now, we, I remember the day when we went from fake cheese or cheap cheese to the real deal, okay? And now there's no going back. I don't care how high inflation goes, I'm never going down again. I've had the real stuff, the real cheese. It is so good. And you just know when you eat the fake stuff, there's just something wrong about it. You know, I, I, I need the real stuff. And that's the idea that we see in this text that even the demons understand the difference between what is real and what is fake. So let's walk through this verse and make a couple observations. But before we get to this counterfeit part, we got to deal with verses 11 and 12. And Paul is being used by God to do miraculous signs and wonders. I mean like handkerchiefs and clothing pieces that touched his skin were passed around and people were being healed. Now you can have my button down after service, but all you're going to get is some sweat and stink, okay? It's not going to heal your problems. This is some miraculous miracles that were being performed by God, not because Paul was special, but because God. And Jesus told his disciples in Mark 16 that he has given authority in the name of Jesus to do these miraculous things, that God's providence did this. God's providence is that it might help those who have never heard his name, who have never been exposed to the gospel, and have never read scripture to be able to understand the power of who God was. Remember the context. Ephesus was a dark place, a magic place that was going in and doing sorcery. This was kind of God showing who's who, kind of like when Moses stood before Pharaoh, right? God was displaying his power. And God can still do extraordinary things like that today. He can still work like that today. He hasn't changed. He is the same God today, yesterday, and forever, amen? That's what Hebrews says. The Italian prophet Malachi also says that I am the God who does not change. It's Malachi, by the way. Um, He is immutable, Immutable. He does not change. But, however, we need to be careful. I have seen both with my own eyes, both abroad and here, rating right North America and Canada, God do extraordinary things like heal people and deliver people. And then I have seen those same people who were healed get backed up with medical documentation by doctors. Like, this isn't just some guy at the back of the church, like, man, I had a headache and I prayed and it's gone. Okay, maybe the Tylenol kicked in, right? I don't know. But these are confirmed healings that the Lord in his providence decided to do. But we need to be careful when we, when we try to go after these things. Going across seas, we see many unexplainable God moments. We see them here in our midst as well that just make us stand in awe of God. And lots of those are documented by trusted sources, and there's lots that are counterfeits too. But just because there's counterfeits doesn't mean we need to be afraid of the real stuff, amen? Uh, We shouldn't just let that dictate our theology. But, uh, But we have trusted sources, and God uses these moments to grab attention. That they'll see God in a miraculous way, which will open their eyes to walk towards truth. So yes, it happens. Acts-type events happen all over the world. We have missionaries who have served for many years in our midst who could probably share some of those stories with you as well, where God has moved in miraculous ways. But here's the warning. Miracles, signs, and wonders are not the gospel. Okay, They are not the gospel, and they should not become the main focus of our gatherings. There are groups out there that claim that, and they are deceitfully wrong deceitfully wrong. We have the word of truth. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We are the temple of God. Wrap your mind around that. The holy presence of God lives in you right now. That's a miracle. And we know this to be true. So the warning is that you and I should be very guarded, very careful that we don't become and form some dependency upon signs and wonders needing God to work miracles. I was raised in ultra charismatic movements, like ultra, not just normal Pentecostals, like the weird ones, okay? And, uh, and this was something that you had to put dependency on. It was guaranteed in the atonement of Jesus Christ that everyone would be healed. And I watch people die thinking they had little faith because they weren't healed. we got to be careful with our theology, with our teaching, that we don't form some type of dependency on signs and wonders for our faith. If your faith is on God to work a miracle in your life, then you don't have faith in God. You have a faith in what he can give you. 1 Corinthians one 22 to 22-23 warns of this. He says, Jews demand a sign. That's who demands a sign. And Greeks, what do they do? They seek wisdom. But what do we do as Christians? What does it say? We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to who? To the Jews who are seeking a sign and also to those who are seeking wisdom. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because that is the power unto salvation, not signs and wonders, Not miraculous events, but the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone. And we're looking, he uses the same categories. To first the Jew, the ones who are seeking the signs, and then also to the Greeks who find their hope and wisdom. Jesus even warned about this in Matthew 12, that an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. So can God work signs and wonders today? Of course, he's God. He's God. Because he doesn't change. Does he still do it? And do we still commonly see it done in random events and in unreached people groups? Yes. But for you and me, we need to understand that we don't have to seek that. That doesn't need to be our priority. Because the power of God, Christ crucified, and the reality of Scripture, and the indwelling of the presence of the Holy Spirit is our reality as Christians. Amen? That's our focus. That's our focus, not signs and wonders. They might happen, and we praise God because of that. We don't start worshiping that, but we praise God because of that. But our main focus as a gathering, as a church, is to bring exaltation to the name of Christ, to worship Him, and to proclaim the gospel to our community. So just because the book of Acts records these events does not mean that we, it's a normal function of the Christian life. I don't know where this has been confused along the roads, but somewhere down Christianity, someone has crossed hairs, and they, they claim that just because it's in the Bible means that it is supposed to be a normal practice of the Christian. That is not true. There's an important principle in biblical interpretation that we need to understand when we look at books like the book of Acts or when we look at other narrative sections in the Bible. And that's the idea of descriptive and prescriptive texts. Many Christians come to the conclusion just because it's in the Bible, you are obligated to obey it, you are obligated to perform it, or you're obligated to reenact it. But the book of Acts does not give us that command and we should not attempt to reenact it. We are not told to do this. See, we need to clearly distinguish between those things in the Bible that are prescriptive and those are the things that we are to um, follow and emulate. And then we are supposed to take those aspects of Scripture that are descriptive, but they are not prescriptive any more than when Jesus walked on water. Just because Jesus walked on water doesn't mean we can. Now, it would make the trip home a lot faster for me. I live on the river. I'll just run down the river. But that's not prescribed in Scripture. We cannot even, with all our faith combined here as a church, get me in the baptismal tank and watch me walk around on water, okay? It's just not going to happen. That was specific signs for specific generations for specific reasons. Can God still do them? Of course he can. He's God. Let's not forget that but let's not make them our main priority or the gospel because they're not. They're not the gospel. There is no greater miracle. Hear this. There is no greater miracle that any of you will ever see or experience in your life than the miracle of watching a wretched sinner just like you come to faith when God breathed life into your dead souls, when God took your hardened hearts and gave you a heart of flesh, there is no greater miracle than the Holy Spirit living in imperfect vessels. And never downplay that. Never downplay that miracle. So does God work miracles? Yeah, I'm saved. You're saved. That's a miracle. Because we're, we were hell bound. But now we're on our way to Glory. So I hope you understand that. And unfortunately, we live in a monopolizing world where so many church leaders have abused this, and over time, they have leveraged it just to make some money. But here we see the same thing happening in our texts. There are these uh, Jewish exorcists, some entrepreneurs maybe who are traveling Jewish prophets, and what they see Paul doing, they go, well, chick ching I maybe can make some money off of this, this name Jesus. Look at how the spirits respond to the name of Jesus. And what we see here is a substitute faith. These Jewish exorcists that we see in verse 13 are just out to make some money. They were looking for a way that they could get a quick buck, and they began to step out in spiritual warfare on somebody else's faith. And we see where that gets them. Because, friends, we can't fight a spiritual battle on our own strength. If you play with fire... You're going to get burned, and you cannot live on borrowed faith. You cannot live on the faith of someone else. You cannot borrow the confidence, the courage, the boldness of your mama's faith, your daddy's faith, your grandmother's faith, or your spouse's faith. You have to have personal faith in Jesus. The power of the resurrection needs to be real in your life. Are the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus and the Lord, because you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Romans 10, 9. Because it needs to be true to you. It needs to be yours. And we see this idea played out in Matthew 25, 1 to 12, with the story of the 12 virgins, or, or 10 virgins, sorry. I add it to. And uh, they were waiting for the bridegroom to come. Right? And they all have their oil, but five of them didn't bring extra oil. So they go to the ones who did and they say, hey, give us some of your faith. Give us some of your oil. And what do they answer? No, no. I can't give you mine because I have to be ready for the bridegroom. So the five quickly hurry off. And they go and they get some more oil. But as they're getting more oil, the bridegroom comes and the five who didn't have enough oil were shut out. Were shut out. Our faith must be our own through Jesus Christ. It cannot be be borrowed and this is such an important lesson if you're a child here if you're a student here you can't live on your mom and dad's faith it's got to be your own maybe you're a husband or a wife and the only reason you're sitting in these chairs because your spouse drags you here you can't borrow their faith either your faith must be yours and you must rely on jesus as your savior savior not through someone else so as we finish today's sermon I put it down here. What am I doing to myself? As we finish today's sermon, uh, by reading the last few verses, what we see is that the people begin to observe what this false faith does, and we see, when they see the imitation faith fail, that real faith increases. There's an increase of real faith. So with that, let's read our remainder verses. Oh, sorry, I must be behind. Acts 19:17 to20. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it was to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase mightily. When God moves and works, other people notice Certainly the word spread of the sons of Sceva and their imitation faith backfiring on them. And the people saw this imitation faith and they contrasted it with the, the true faith of Paul. And fear fell on them. His message is true. But the people who witnessed this and heard this and the fear that arose on them, they didn't run. They rather fell on their knees and turned to Christ. And what we see is that Jesus' name was being worshipped and people were coming to Christ left, right, and center. But not just new converts, followers of Christ saw this act and realized that they had to give up their secret sins, their practicing of dark magic. They did so by burning their sorcery books, their dark magic, as a public declaration of their repentance. And here's what you must understand when you read this we see an outward expression of an inward repentance. These people were responding from the fear and majesty of the Lord that moved them to the action of repentance to say, hey, this part of the life that I was finding identity and living off of, I can't put my trust in that anymore. I have to trust Christ. I need to separate myself from this. And that's a statement and an action of true repentance. What I need you to understand today is that sometimes repentance will cause you to lose things, to give up things that are temporary, in exchange for what is eternal. This is a dramatic life change testimony. What we see here is true awakening, true revival, and it comes through true repentance. That's what triggers revival. We must notice that their true repentance was moved by the majesty of God, not self-imposed guilt or guilt imposed by the preacher. They, They were overwhelmed by what? The presence of the Lord. They were overcome with fear of the Lord, and they began to move. We have all confessed out of guilt. I have confessed out of guilt. I remember people at my church bringing records and uh, boxes full of records and tapes. and uh, uh, I won't explain that. Most people know what those are. Records and tapes. And they brought them in, and they sat them down, and they burned the devil's music. But the next week, they all went back out and bought the same records i 'm still salty, my dad did that. You know how rich I could be off those records now? Like I tell you, anyways, um, they burned them all out of false guilt, and a lot of them went back and rebought it because they weren 't moved by a, a godly sorrow. they were moved by worldly sorrow, and worldly sorrow is a per- person who is operating out of not concern that they 've sinned against a holy God rather they 're just concerned they got caught, and now they 're just going to find a different way to sin the same way just maybe down a different street but a godly sorrow, like we see in the text is produced by a healthy fear of the Lord which shows you that you have sinned against a holy God R.C. Sproul said every sin is cosmic treason against a holy God and it's the sin that needs to stop true repentance is moved and motivated by the majesty of God in verse 17 it was the fear of the Lord that moved them to change so you and I should work to please God and not people Because the bottom line is this. Genuine confession results when the fear of God is more in our eyes than when we fear man. Fear of man will just be guilt. Fear of God will bring change. So what begins to happen in our text? We see these people who are responding to what God told them to do and and not what man told them to do. They begin to move and are motivated by the fear and understanding of God's majesty. And in verse 20 it says that they grew mightily in the word of God. People were responding to truth. People were responding to Scripture. People were responding to the Spirit, and others took notice. Because the world's watching you, whether you like it or not, to see the sincerity of your faith. Now, I don't have a fire pit out front that I want you to throw your cell phones in or other sin items in. We don't believe... (laughs) That's dumb. I'm just going to say it. That's dumb. Okay, we're not going to call you to that extreme movement. I'm just simply trying to help you and I understand that we must listen And respond to what the Lord is calling us to do and confess to him. Because true repentance is a response to the spirit of God and not man. Now, one of my biggest pet peeves as a church is that we just keep telling you to confess your sin. But in the practice of discipleship, sometimes we need to be shown how. So would you all stand with me if you're able? And we're going to read a prayer of repentance as we close. And if you agree with it, you know, just make it your own. It's time that we remove these secret sins, maybe public sins. Maybe it's something that you've been struggling with. You know. You don't need to name it out loud. You know in your heart. So make these words your words as we pray them. You can put your hands out, whatever's comfortable in your worship time. But would you close your eyes and pray with me? Almighty God, we acknowledge and confess that we have sinned. Against you, in thought, word, and deed. Against you in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Deepen within us our sorrow for the wrong we have done. And the good, the good that we have left undone. Lord, you are full of compassion and graciousness. Lord, you, are compassion and graciousness. you are slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. There is always forgiveness with you. Forgiveness. Amen. I'm going to pray this last part. Restore to us, Lord, the joy of our salvation that is found in you. Bind up that which is broken, O Lord. Give light to our minds, strength to our wills, and rest to our souls, O Father. Speak to each of us and let your word abide within us until it has brought, uh, brought in us your holy will. Amen.